everyone. Thank you for joining me for episode 10 of School Nutrition Dietitian. You probably remember seeing today's guests all over the news earlier this year. Jim Conklin is the president and co-founder of Cultivate Culinary. Cultivate is a 501c3 not-for-profit organization that's devoted to ending the cycle of hunger in local communities of northern Indiana by providing a food rescue service. The feature that was all over the news was about Cultivate forming a partnership with the local school system to rescue food that had never been served so that food insecure kids could have something to eat over the weekend. Everyone who works in school nutrition is aware that not all children in this country have consistent access to food. So there was a lot of interest around how can we do something similar in our districts? Is it possible? Do our states allow it? There are so many questions. So I thought it would be a great idea to have Jim Conklin on himself to speak to what's involved and how we might get started with investigating what options are available to us in our parts of the country. As I mentioned, Jim was being pulled in a lot of different directions for interviews because interest is so high in helping solve this child hunger problem. So I'm really thankful that he took out the time to speak to the school nutrition community in particular in this interview. School nutrition dietitian here on a mission to show you fruits and vegetables can be super delicious. Eating healthy keeps you healthy on the inside. Keep your stomach satisfied. And keep a clear mind Now you're ready for your academics Focus, time to handle business Breakfast, you don't want to miss it Help your body to replenish Clean food, clear mind That is the vision Tune in to the School Nutrition Dietitian We have a feeling that it's going to be um, Food rescue has been happening for a long time. In fact, our, the model that we that we visited in Indianapolis called Second Helpings, they've been doing for 20 years. So um, it's kind of interesting that here we're just this little upstart, you know, food rescue organization, you know, and and for whatever reason, we've we've gotten all this attention. But there's there have been some really good ones that have been in operation for for some time now. Right. Well, let's start there. How did you end up becoming the president and co-founder of Cultivate Culinary? How did you get to this point? Yeah. So for me, I was um, I was working in public accounting. Uh, try to get through this pretty quick, but working in public accounting went to went to work for one of my clients, a small privately owned company, South of South Bend, and this gentleman owns owns several businesses but one main one well one of the side businesses was this little restaurant in Bremen Indiana that um, just didn't perform all that well financially speaking um, it's a hard being in the restaurant industry is pretty hard work it's a hard industry actually to make money in and so one of the first things I did I said hey I know that this is worth all the time energy and effort that we're putting into this and because I work for a guy that's pretty generous, he said, well, we're going to close a restaurant. Let's, let's see if we can do something good in our community, right? We've got a chef, we got a restaurant and let's, let's see if we can do something. Um, and prior to coming here, I worked um, on a board for an organization called the crossing, which is a local, let me say alternative school, just so people know what that is. But um, we started, we started in the beginning just with this, 
culinary job training program for these uh, local high school dropouts for uh, for a quick summary of what they do. But um, and and they had several job training programs, and we thought, well, hey, we have a restaurant, we have a chef, but let's put these resources to good use. You know, we're going to, you know, spend some money on something. So we kind of started off really small. Um, and that's really all we intended on doing. And we went down and visited second helpings in Indianapolis, um, because they had a culinary job training program. And we wanted just to see, you know, Hey, what, here's a good model. They were, they were really successful. Let's see if we could learn a few things. And in our kind of haste to learn about, culinary job training, we kind of missed the fact that their main main mission is this food rescue organization. And um, our chef, Randy Z, who's the other co-founder and myself, um, kind of walked into this huge operation of rescuing food. And so last year, they rescued over 2 million pounds of food, and they feed about 4,000 people daily with the food that they rescue. So, so when you walk in this place, it's a huge kitchen. And it was like the Tuesday after the Indianapolis 500. And so there was all kinds of volunteers, there were all kinds of food, and we were just totally distracted from the main reason we visited the place. And uh, we, said, we said, okay, we, we left and we said, we got we to gotta do this. We got to see if we can figure, figure out how to do this in our hometown. Um, it was just so impressive. And they were able to, to eliminate so much waste and at the same time feed so many people in Indianapolis, we just, we figured we needed to uh, see if we could try it back in our, in our community. And that's kind of how the food rescue side of what we we're doing got started. Just seeing someone else model it inspired. Seeing, you. Yeah. And, and, and just, I think the timing, I mean, they handle a lot of food every day, but that particular Tuesday was a really busy day for them. And because Indianapolis, the population of Indianapolis grows on the 500 weekend, and there's there's so much special events going around around the town, and and Second Helpings had all these um, partnerships with these special events, hotels, convention halls, those kind of things, and so it's it was just so impressive in what they were doing. We thought, okay, let's bring this back to our hometown, and and we did some research, and we kind of noticed that. Food rescue organizations that have been around tend to be in the larger cities, Chicago, Atlanta, Indianapolis, Philadelphia has a great one called 412. And it's like, all right, so this is a little risky because I don't see anybody really trying this in a smaller town like South Bend. And so we kind of figured we're going to give this a try. We had some financial support from the person that I work for. And he said, hey, I'll give you, you know, we shut this restaurant down. We'll, we'll invest some money in this concept. Let's see if we can figure this out. So that's kind of how it all started. There are so many people that don't even know food insecurity is a problem in our country. How was that already on your radar or did you realize that once you visited Second Helping? Well, and for us, it was, I mean, I think our, 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 what we understood from working with um, the crossing students, we got a small glimpse of food insecurity. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we we're running our culinary class, we kind of came up with of how we we're going to do food rescue even before we knew we we're going to get into food rescue. So we had been teaching classes, cooking food. We knew the kids were going hungry over the weekend. Uh, now we call that the, the 68 hour gap from Friday at lunch to Monday morning at mm-hmm. breakfast, right? right? That's the gap. 
68 hours in between where, where there's so many of our kids, I think 54% of our kids in the nation struggle with food insecurity over the weekend. And so when we, when we saw the second helpings model and after experiencing it in a very small way with these, these crossing students is that we started sending meals home with them, frozen meals. We'd make up food during the week, you know, kind of what we used to all do, right? We'd take our right. leftovers and the food we were making and we'd, we would freeze that so they could, and we'd send it home with them over the weekend. Um, and we hadn't even thought, even heard of food rescue at that point, but that ends up being a big part of how we do food rescue. And that's how we kind of can um, do our backpack program, which got so much, you know, excitement and so many views over the, over the internet is like, oh, now we've got something we could put a meal that we could put in a kid's backpack instead of just a just a snack that you know you know maybe not the healthiest thing for the kid to take home and eat right and looking at the website it looks like food rescue might actually be a little bit different from what people assume when they hear the term so can you clarify what type of food you're able to rescue and whether or not it's actually leftovers or what is the process yeah, so so it's 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 food from I always say people that have to estimate how many people are going to eat that day. So cater schools are great examples of that, and it's food that's been made by the chefs but never actually served. So it hasn't seen a buffet table, it hasn't been on somebody's plate. You know, ain't no one's coughed over it or right. you know put their hands in it or anything like that. It's just in a school system, uh, a you have to plan your meals out way in advance and then when you're you know you're coming up to whatever is on the menu that day you have to try to guess how many of these kids are going to show up what they're going to eat you know it's really difficult um and especially like um one of the things we just learned especially like there's a difference in what might be appealing in a rural community as far as a menu item and what might be appealing in an urban setting right and so you may have spaghetti and meatballs one day and at your rural schools, you, you won't have hardly any leftovers, but maybe in your urban schools, it's not nearly as pop, popular of an item. And so, so even when you plan and guess the number, right. And, you know, you still have difference of taste that you're trying to figure in there. So it's really difficult for the school. Um, they're not necessarily being wasteful at all. It's just a challenge that they face every single day. And so for us, it's, you know, the school system food that we're getting. And what, what makes this unique is that I believe we're the first food rescue organization to what we call rescue hot food from a school system. There are share tables that take food to the food bank, you know, the uncooked, individually wrapped, never opened items, right? Um, so share tables exist in school systems, although not very many of them, like less than 1% of schools have share tables, which totally amazes me. But but that's what we call kind of the easy food to rescue because there's no perceived health risk in taking something that's been individually wrapped and never opened, right? And then taking that to the food bank so it doesn't go into the landfill, right? That seems a lot less risky than maybe what we're doing. Um, I would contend that what we're doing is not very, it's, it's riskier, but not that much more risky. Um, we operate in many ways like a food bank. We're just rescuing a different type of food that's already been made. In many ways, it's actually more valuable than food that you get from the food bank because somebody has put all the time, energy, and resources into making it, 
right? And so we're taking food that, that's been made and made by really good people, whether it's the school system, whether it's University of Notre Dame, where, whether it's our local casino, um, our local event center. What's really amazing about the food that we rescue, it, it's really good food. <laughs> I, I don't know what it is, and, and I don't know what volunteers think, but the first time they come in and actually volunteer and help us make these meals, their impression of food rescue just totally changes because I, I think in their mind, and this is the best description I can think of. They think we go into golden corral at midnight and take whatever's left on the buffet. Right. And, and, and that's so not what this is, right. It's, it's everything that's been made by really good chefs and never actually put out there on the buffet. And that comes from places that serve really good food places. We would pay, you know, 12 to $25 a plate for. So we're actually able to rescue food, people that maybe living in the poverty community that would get a meal, maybe they don't get to normally eat on a day-to-day basis. So even though it's cooled down and reheated, it's still a, a good caliber of food. It's a, it's a better meal than what they typically get um, most days. Now, what challenges have been involved in putting procedures in place to keep the food safe? Or was it pretty standard, like the same food safety rules of how long you can leave it in the temperature danger zone and cool it down? What were some of the hurdles that you had to contend with? So, I mean, A, education and the perception of risk is probably the biggest hurdle that you have to deal with, educating that it's safe to rescue the food. And and so there's a four-hour window after the food is heated and and prepared to be served to actually get that food under 40 degrees. And you have to get that in a four-hour time frame. And that, that falls on the people that we get the food from. The way I look at it is, those same people are charged with cooking that food and serving our kids every day, right? So my, my thought is if they're capable of actually making it from scratch and actually serving our kids with it, they could probably cool it down properly. It's not, right. not hard to do, you know? And, and really one of the things for the food donor is there's this perception that it's going to add a lot of burden to my daily schedule because uh, restaurants and cafeterias, you shorthand, especially in a good employment market like we have now, it's hard to find qualified help and, and you feel like you're stretched. But really, it's not hard for them to participate once you get through the planning side of this. Um, we just come in on a daily schedule, uh, just like any person bringing you food, and you have a designated airing refrigerator for our food, so we know exactly where to go. And we kind of walk in school system we just kind of walk in we know where to go we get the food and we leave and they may never even notice we're there and from their part they're just taking the food instead of taking it and throwing a trash can right they're taking it cooling it down properly and sitting in a refrigerator so it really doesn't add a ton of burden to their uh to their world once you kind of get through the the initial planning phases in the first week or two of actually doing the food rescue it becomes somewhat second nature to them. Has it been easy to get buy-in in your community? How did you basically clarify to people it's not going to increase burden and it's something essential for the community as a whole? Yeah, it, 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 it's taken, you know, every bit of two years. We got fortunate here 
locally because the University of Notre Dame was great timing. About the time we were starting this food rescue organization, the University of Notre Dame just finished a big remodel to the football stadium here where they added corporate suites and they're going to, you know, they're planning to use the stadium for special events more often. And, and, and they want to be a sustainable organization. So literally two weeks after we got started, we had a friend of a friend bring in a representative from Notre Dame said, Hey, we're looking for an organization that can handle a lot of food that may come from home football games. And, and so it was, it was, it was really kind of great to start with the University of Notre Dame. And then we have a local catering company called Nelson's Catering Barbecue who does, oh man, they do, I think, over $10 million in catering revenue. They might be one of the biggest caterers in the state of Indiana. And so um, we literally in the first two weeks started with these two entities who are our two largest suppliers. So um, it was great timing on our part. I can't say that we planned it. But I think most people, if they're considering, like, hey, can I do this in my community? I think they could probably identify, do, do I have a college, right? Notre Dame, as far as serving students, is not the largest in the world either. I think they have 8,000 students. So there are a lot larger colleges in our community. In fact, I think in almost every college town, you could do a version of what we're doing here in South Bend just from the food um, between the public schools and the university that happens to be in your own town. So I think you can actually look in your in your community and go, okay, where am I, before you spend $1, mm-hmm. where could I possibly get food from? And, you know, and I think it, we kind of say we built, we're building the plane as we're flying it, but looking back, we, we could do a lot more planning before we take off, you know? Right. Now, with so many people reaching out to you and asking for guidance on how to get started, have you thought at all about creating resources so that other people across the country can attempt to model something similar after what you've already established? Yeah, and and we are. So the the two backpack programs that we have are kind of pilots, we call them. Um, we're doing some research that we think will be, uh, in fact, the University of Notre Dame is going to do some uh, analysis of the results of the pilots after they're completed mm-hmm. that we think will be really helpful for the next organization that, that's considered doing this. Um, in today's world, especially when you're a new not-for-profit, a lot of times you're, it, it's, it's hard to get individual donors right from the get-go. Um, you, you might be relying on grants to get you started. And when you're writing grants, it's helpful to have some good data um, in when you apply for those grants. So th- we're doing two things. One, we want to have that information before we get out there and, and try to help someone get started. Um, and the logistics of the backpacks we're still trying to figure out within the school system. I would say both programs are going really well, but there are some things that we want to solve before we kind of release data out there to people to get started, hopefully that it's worthwhile for them and they won't make those same mistakes. And so what we're doing is just collecting everybody, everybody kind of going to our website and submitting a request there and we're collecting all their contact information. Um, and then we're communicating with them as we get, as we go through this pilot but kind of in a group fashion instead of individually, because to, to respond to 300 people individually, we that's all we would be doing. Um, but 
but but there's there have been a ton of great questions. So we're kind of aggregating all those questions as they come in, and then we're kind of putting everybody into our customer database so we can respond to people um, as we're going through this process and kind of let them know what the timeline is. I mean, we were kind of overwhelmed, and that, that caught us off guard that so many people would be interested in starting something similar. And so we kind of had to kind of scramble and figure out how we're going to do this. But I think we got a pretty good plan on on what we want to do. And it takes um, it takes some resources, but not mm-hmm. a ton. I mean, our our budget is about three hundred thousand um, a year, so it's not an astronomical amount of money. And do you um, have a lot of volunteer labor as well? We have a ton. Okay. Yeah, we have probably up somewhere around four hundred volunteers now. Um, and so that's part of the learning process that we went through. We have a great app that we use called Sign Up Genius now that makes volunteering so much easier. And as soon as we put that app in and started scheduling our volunteer opportunities three weeks in advance, our volunteer database just grew it probably fourfold. Um, and it became so much easier to schedule it for the volunteer and for us to actually schedule them to be there because it's it's on your phone. It links to your calendar. You can pick a day and time that works for you. And so it, it's we've gone through this really, you know, immense learning curve over the last two years. And it's it's um, we only have a head start. I guess I would say we don't have everything figured out. But we have a head start, and I think we could help people get started, which which is usually the number one thing that keeps people away from doing anything is, how do I get started? Right. And speaking to that, what would you recommend? Reviewing the website and a few of the interviews, it was pretty clear that you guys are aware that it takes a community approach to address hunger and food insecurity and you have to identify stakeholders, it isn't something you can do in isolation. So how would you recommend someone get started? Yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. And so, you know, we had um, an organization from Grand Rapids come visit us and and the number one thing is, A, educate yourself, right? Mm -hmm. Understand that your food donors um, and you have liability protection provided by the federal government, right? And so that's huge is that you have the knowledge in Indiana, we're fortunate um, and, and each person would have to check in their state. But in Indiana, the state of Indiana actually has passed guidelines for schools to participate in food rescue. Um, Indiana was, the, I think, first to do that. Um, okay. And I don't know how many have followed. So it might be before you really get too far into this, if you're really focused on working with the school system. You might just be going to your state house or your local representative or senator to to lobby for them to pass laws similar to guidelines similar to Indiana, because mm-hmm. that really opened the door for us to get in the school system. Plus, we had a we I mean, we had some big name food donors like the University of Notre Dame and our local casino that have legal departments that reviewed all the data that said, okay we want to participate in this. And, and so we could always point back to them to say, Hey, you know, these guys have really good legal departments. They feel like they're safe, you know, kind of, you you know, you're probably okay too. So it helped us to have a little bit, but, but even the next organization, right. They can point to us. They can point to second helpings. They can point to 412 in Philly, right. There are people rescuing food and, and big ways. Second helpings, 2 million pounds of it. Right. And so 
um, they're just educating yourself. And then the number one thing I would do is go out and convince people to give you food before you buy the facility, before you hire the people, before you do any of that, right? Go out and sign agreements with people say, Hey, once we, you know, once we get started, right, you'll donate food to us. And that would change. That would make this, if I was to look back and start over again or start in a different community, that would easily save us six figures plus 12 months of time. Is one of the biggest obstacles you think for people, the fear of being held liable for something? It is, um, but it's only a perception. Um, as long as you're a food donor, right? Like I say, the person that we trust to make it, we, we all like, we'll go to my local casino and I'll eat, right? I'll go to the local century center, the local event center for a fundraiser and I'll eat there, right? I trust those people to make my food, right? All we're doing is trusting them to cool it down, right? So it's not, it's really not that big of a leap to say that they can do that properly. Right. And then you got to trust the person, us handling it, that will, that we get it and we get it frozen. We try, we have it frozen in five days from it being prepared. And I think the, the health regulations is seven days. So we get it frozen, you know, ahead of time. Um, so you have to trust that we do that and we know what we're doing, but we get inspected by the health department, just like every other restaurant. Um, we have everything dated uh, properly, just like any other restaurant does. So, so I mean, there is some like almost a built-in system to check that that you know, a the people that you're rescuing food from is handling it properly, and then b we get inspected by the same people. So, I think it, it, you're just kind of dealing with that perception. But the more and more food rescue gets popular, the less that you'll have to deal with that, right? Right. And and so. Like I said, it's kind of the most valuable food. I mean, the food bank can feed a lot of people, and they rescue, we use the term rescue, they rescue a ton of food, tons, tons, way more food than we possibly can. Um, but they just do it from a grocery store, and it you know, tends to be in a box and uh, or already frozen like a protein, right? And we all accept that uh, in society. So this is just further up the food chain where the food's already been made, and you're taking something that's a little bit more valuable than what you're going to get in a food bank. And you just have to make sure you're handling it properly, which I don't think it's all that hard to do. Um, we do it at home all the time. So um, we have Randy's serve safe. We have several people that are serve safe certified. So we, we know kind of what the rules are. And then if we don't, we're going to get in trouble by the health department, just like any other place. Right. And this is a, such a needed resource. I've volunteered at food banks before. And like you said, it's not the same quality of food. And you have to think about things being shelf stable and whether or not the people who are receiving the donation have the ability to cook it or heat it. Like there are a lot of other things to consider when it comes to filling in those gaps and taking care of people who don't get to eat every day. Who would you say the typical client is? Is it school-aged children generally or the elderly? Yeah, so when, when we first started, we, we really focused on our local pantry network. So I don't know if it's true in every community, but I think it's true in most. It's like you have this loosely tied together pantry network that goes to the food bank and gets, say, a lot of, they buy a lot of this 
food, right? There's really not a very well organized um, hunger relief solution in, in most communities. I, I can't say that's true with everyone. Maybe maybe there are some communities that there's a super organized effort. But usually you have individual organizations like a homeless shelter, um, like a low-income retirement home, um, like a food bank. Um, and so, but they tend to kind of operate in isolation of each other. Right. Um, I think, I think hunger is, is even in the U S I think hunger is such a big deal that it, it'd be better to build a local network. Um, and you'd have to decide like in ours, we, we say our three counties are St. Joseph, Elkhart and Marshall. We're all neighboring counties and, and we're all somewhat tied together economically. So that's how we kind of look at, that's our local network. Right. And our first step was to, um, because we had places like Nelson's and the University of Notre Dame and public schools was to actually get food from them. But but we want to add steps even down where we're actually preparing food. We get a lot of food donated to us that's unprepared. So we want to add, we're actually in the building process now of putting in um, two kitchens where we can actually start to prepare food to make these individual frozen meals um, that way we can increase the capacity that we have so we can help more people. Um, but we started off with the local pantry network because we knew we knew there was a need there. Um, most pantries are ran by really passionate people on low budgets, right? And so um, they typically go to the food bank and they buy food and they put it on their shelves, right? We thought, well, I wonder if we could just supplement what they're doing with our meals and we could kind of add a pantry here and there, and and that could grow with us. As we get more food, we could add more pantries, and it would be something that we could actually manage. Um, but but the newfound interest and, and the reason the story has gone, I think, viral is really tied to that backpack program because um, the food bank locally does a lot of great snack programs, and they can help a lot of kids. But but um, even I think even the food bank would say, how do we make this healthier, Right. And and if if you start with uh, the idea that I have to give them a shelf stable product, then you're gonna you're gonna revert to can the box items processed food, and all we do is kind of flip that around. If I I start with a meal, how do I make it shelf stable? You just freeze it, right? And and with backpacks and and insulation technology, it can actually stay in that backpack for a day and a half without coming out of the safe food zone. So it gives you plenty of time to take the food to the school, the school to put it in the kid's locker, and then the child to take it home and put it in their freezer. And so that's, we just kind of started with a different premise. If we have food, how do we make it shelf-stable versus I got to give away shelf-stable food? Right. Oh, that makes sense. That's a good approach. So for schools that are looking to make sure their kids don't have that huge gap between their last meal on Friday and their meal on Monday, you would recommend that they look for another organization that's kind of trying to start that network, connecting pantries and connecting different food sources, because this definitely doesn't sound like an operation that one school system could take on on their own. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think you have to have multiple food partners. And I think it's helpful because, I mean, schools are tight on budget. 
you know, and, and they have enough struggles and people are stretched enough different ways um, that it would be really hard for them, I think, to administer a program like this. Um, I think it's helpful to have an organization that's kind of focused and that's what they do. That's what we do with, we, we work with partners and getting their food and packaging it and we organize the volunteers. And, and, and so I, I think it'd be hard for just one school system or one university to do this, or even if they could, it wouldn't be as effective as organizing. Um, Cause the way it works from the number side is the more pounds I have, the better because I could take, we have a lot of kind of cost that doesn't change uh, salaries and the cost of our building and utilities. Right. So the more pounds of food I have, the more I could spread those six costs across. So it's more, it's just like any other distribution company. You're trying to do what you're doing in the most cost effective manner. And the best way to do that is by handling more product. And so I think if you did it in isolation, um, you might be able to help kids, um, but not near as many of them. And I don't think it, the, the numbers as far as the cost would, you know, would be as favorable. So it, it does take, a, I think, an organization in, in a community. If it's a big city, I mean, like Atlanta or something, right, you, you probably don't need to get out even to the suburbs. But, but, but you know, in, in a smaller town like South Bend, you might look at your, you know, to your east, west, north, and south, say, okay, is there another community close by where I can really kind of gather all my resources? Um, for instance, Marshall County, um, you know, farming is a much bigger resource down there. So we have, you know, livestock farmers down there, right? And then, you know, maybe they can donate livestock. And in Indiana, we've got an organization that will actually pay to have that livestock process. And we could actually go literally farm to table from you know, from the farm to somebody that really could use it in a community. And we're just kind of that middle guy. And I think there's a lot of sense in having a middle guy in there. Right. Yeah, that does make sense. Is there a national registry of food rescue organizations or what's the best way to go about locating one in your area? Yeah. You know, internet searcher isn't. So one of the kind of like things that we talked about after all this happened is like you go your mind kind of goes crazy right do you do you try to franchise what you're doing no and we kind of kind of quickly go no it's got to kind of be a community-based model i think it takes people inside the community to make relationships with other people so i think that would be really hard but what we kind of hope um there is a food rescue organization that uh, that we call into once a month and, and, and people just kind of share best practices. So what we kind of hope is that we can increase the number of people do organizations doing this. And because our video happened to be the one to go viral, that we can kind of create that national group, um, kind of like a food bank is right. There's 211 right. food banks across the country. Could we create something like that? Um, and maybe we can have, we can share some, some, buying power if we agree to buy packaging from a certain company or we can actually cre create a little bit of political influence because we have you know 60 or 100 organizations across the country that's doing this because one of the things that, that happened um during the obama administration is they changed the dietary nutrition guidelines right and it and it really forces schools to plan their menu well in advance and, and and that sounds great 
but there's a real consequence when it comes to food waste with that. It makes it really difficult to repurpose food. So it, it limits or handcuffs the school um, from actually repurposing something that was left over the day before because now you're adding it to, and that may get you out of your dietary guidelines for the school. So, so sometimes when legislators pass laws, they're well-intended, but they have unintended consequences. And I think some of those that got passed during Obama's administration, while they're well-intended, mm-hmm. has, has actually probably increased food waste at, at schools, in schools. Yeah, I, you know, I'm really not sure because I came into school nutrition after those changes were all in place. And from mm-hmm. the dietitian's perspective, of course, we're all really focused on health outcomes. So that uh, the thought of food waste becoming more of an issue because it's more difficult to repurpose the food didn't even really occur to me. I know the way we do it in our district is we try and plan the menu in anticipation of leftovers. Like the same ingredient mm-hmm. should have multiple uses throughout the week. And I sure. know some people put their extras out the following day, but I'm sure if you were actually in the field before that it has been a steep learning curve and I don't really have any data to support my assumption that there's no additional waste. I know when we do offer versus serve and we give the kids an option to decline things they don't want, we control plate waste that way. But when it comes to the forecasting, like you said, it in any industry where you have to predict how many people are going to eat with you and what they're going to want to eat, it tends to be, there's always waste there. And that's a good question. I don't know if that went up or stayed the same, but yeah, I'm sure it was less tricky before. The other thing, the other thing is that, so I'm like, I always look things from a numbers point of view, because that's what my background is is the one thing that, that amazes me is all the individually wrapped items. And I, I get mm-hmm. why that happens, but I also know that's way more costly. I mean, to buy an, let's say a, a fruit cup that's individually wrapped versus a number 10 can of mixed fruit, right? The right. cost difference to feed the number of kids is enormous. And if you think we're, I think we're, there's 56 million kids in the U.S. Our, our schools feed every single day. Um, over 30 million of those kids are in free and reduced lunch. So 30 million kids in the U.S. rely on the school system Monday through Friday for most of their dietary needs, which is it's kind of like when you think of it that way, it's a little bit overwhelming. And then you realize you have this gap on Saturday, Sunday, which most of our food service workers in our school systems absolutely know what that looks like because they deal with it no matter how wealthy the kids system is right we've we've got a local school system that's you know our highest you know earning zip code right they still have food insecurity issues in the 30 percent range so it doesn't really matter the demographics there there are going to be kids in that school system that fit that food insecure category and so and and we're already strapped on our budget with schools and we create these things where everything has to be individually wrapped and that's horrible for the environment anyway. So it's like, you know, it, it, there's always this balance. I think it's really hard to find. And, and, and I think at least what we're doing helps eliminate the waste. Food waste is horrible, 
um, for the environment. It's 21% what we put in our landfills, and it creates methane gas, which is horrible for the environment. We can all argue about the degree of the damage that's causing. The reality is it's literally the largest producer. The landfills are the largest producers of methane gas, and we all scientifically understand that's bad for the environment. So I think what we're doing, not only does it help feed our, our children or adults in our community, it actually helps that equation. If you, and if you multiply that across the nation where we serve 56 million kids, that could be a big number. Right. Yeah, that's a really good point. And when it comes to the packaging and with you being eco-conscious, I think I saw one of the fundraisers said there would be water, but there wouldn't be cups. So it looks like that's something, um, actually, I might be thinking about something else, but how yep. do you keep all of those things in mind? So we want to address hunger, but we also want to be sustainable. We also want to avoid using a ton of plastic. What solutions do you find to that? Or do you just tackle one thing at a time? I think you have to try to balance that. Um, and, and you can't just like cherry pick one thing, right? So like our packaging is made out of, I think it's 30% recycled material. And, and because we freeze it and heat it in the microwave, right? It can't be total, at least we haven't been able to find a packaging solution that's 100% recyclable. Um, and the reality is, is that we're giving food to people that would have to eat anyway. So it, to say that, okay, we have, we have a plastic packaging and then, and that's a, you know, a, maybe a, a bad thing. Um, that person's going to get food from somewhere that's going to come in plastic or something. You know what I mean? So you can't right. just, you have to balance that just a little bit and not just cherry pick. Well, it's made out of plastic. Well, it's made out of as much recycled plastic as we can to still handle the tolerances. So you do have to balance that with the, the need that you want to feed hungry people. Um, and so I think as long as people are reasonable, reasonable about it, I'm, I'm fairly certain that we're, creating a smaller footprint than what existed before, right? We're able to to resource that food and get it to somebody that needs it, you know, and we're using as much recycled material as, as we can. And if we find another option, we'll certainly switch to it. Um, right. So it is something that we think about because we anticipate people looking at that, right? And we care about that as well. I think our, our first concern is feeding people and then right, the environmental impact. And and a lot of our donors and people that support us, it goes the other way around. We don't really care, right? Because we're still all like-minded. Um, for me, I do it because my faith says to other people may do it right. because they want to be socially conscious. It doesn't really matter to me, right? right? We have the same, we have the same goal, right? Why we're motivated to do it is a little bit irrelevant. So um, we we try to balance the environmental as much as we can. Um, if we could find a, you know, if we could figure out a way to make it reusable, even if it was reusable, you have to bring it back, wash it, and do all those kind of things. So right. it's not always a, a you know a a or b. It's some combination. If you choose b, there's still some environmental consequences of choosing b. But a lot of times when people kind of think um, want to pick on you a little bit they they just say hey you're using plastic yes guilty but we're trying to be as conscious as we can about that 
Right. And then when you think about all of the energy that was already used and all the fuel that was already used to produce this food, to grow it or uh, to feed the animals, whatever it is that you're yep. making sure doesn't end up in the landfill, then clearly you're coming out in the positive by making sure this doesn't just go in the trash. And I don't think a lot of people realize when things are packed really, really tightly together, it maybe would have been biodegradable in your backyard, but it's not going to be able to break down efficiently in the way that in everything's. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, and the thing, that's the way I look at it. So my actually, I'm a volunteer. I don't, I'm not a paid person for cultivate, but my actual day job is in, in the agricultural business. We oh. make equipment for combines. So I know a lot about the, you know, the, the, the reaping and sowing, right. And it takes a ton of resources to even get the, to get the food planted or the livestock grown. And you think about every step of the distribution channel that when we throw food away, I would tell you it's probably the most wasteful thing we do, right? Because, all the energy and resources, I don't know that people think this way, right? They just think, oh, it's just a piece of chicken, right? Yeah, but man, all the energy and resources from growing the chicken to getting it to the distributor, to get it to the retailer, to get it to your hands, right? You waste every ounce of resource that went into that piece of chicken. And the only reason it's reasonable is because you're doing it in cost-wise, you're doing it in such mass quantities right? That the actual cost of throwing that piece of chicken away may not be significant to your personal budget, but the reality is you just threw away a ton of resources, plus you can feed somebody, right? right? And we can we can follow good practices at home, and, and, and we all could be better educated about how to do that. We're just trying to target, like the food banks targeted the retailers of our, our, of our can and box and, and our frozen items, right? we're just targeting a different source, right? We're trying to be yet another organization, right? It's trying to reduce the waste equation. And I think we have to have much larger farms um, today, not only because of all the pressures of farming, but the reality is because we waste 40% of the food we make. That's such a um, disturbing statistic. It is. It's really kind of hard to swallow, you know, right. so, and, and, and most of that, you know, not quite half of that comes from the home and we all individually have to do our own thing um, and to use our resources there. But a lot of that comes from, I don't know, it's 10 to 15 comes from institutions and another third comes from restaurants, which is where caterers fall into. So we're just targeting a different part of the food chain and trying to repurpose that food. Plus our cases that we we give we give out cases of 30 of our meals we actually get our banana boxes and what we give them from Notre Dame so we're actually repurposing those boxes they eventually get thrown away right but we at least get another yeah we get to use them use them one more time for a really good purpose so right that is awesome I think your your mission is wonderful and like you said there's a lot of different organizations with different motivations that kind of have similar missions. So I'm looking forward to seeing how we're all going to be able to collaborate and Mm -hmm. reduce hunger in our communities because it is a heartbreaking problem. And I hate to think of how much potential some children have that will never be fully expressed because they 
were malnourished at a time that they needed nourishment more than any other point in their life for them to fully develop cognitively, for them to be able to stay in their seat and focus. Like I'm a nightmare when I'm hungry in the afternoon. So the thought of having to go through the whole weekend without food or never having a snack after school, because there's some schools that aren't funded for after school snacks or they're not funded for supper. But like you said, even if you're in a high income area, that doesn't mean there's no hunger in that community. No wonder it's difficult for people sometimes to focus and really thrive academically because they don't have the tools that they need. A hungry child is just not going to be able to learn efficiently. Yeah, and, and, and it's not just that. I mean, I think a lot of people think it's an urban situation. It's a rural situation, too. Um, our rural communities have anywhere from a third to 40% of their kids. On, so it's not just a an urban city issue that you're dealing with. It, it's it's pretty much all over the country. Right. Um, and like I said, there's 54% of our kids on free and reduced lunch. That is just an amazing stat. That yeah. and, and In fact, one of my interviews on the BBC um, the lead-in to my discussion was, how is the richest country in the world struggling with um, hunger, their kids struggling with hunger? Mm. And that was the lead-in to my interview. And I'm like, well, that's that's kind of hard to follow, you know? So, right. you, know, you know, and it was like, wow, you, you think about it in those terms, and we waste 40% of our food supply. We got to be. I'm an accountant, so I hate waste. Chef Randy is a uh, chef, so they don't like waste either we got to do a better job than this. Yeah. And I, I wonder if, if you really had a concerted effort here, how much you could, the difference you can make. Um, and I think the food bank was the first step, maybe maybe the easier step when it comes to risk. But I, I, there's a lot of additional steps we can take, especially in a school system where we can, as a state, we can kind of somewhat mandate Right. participation in these kind of programs. It, it, like I said, the, the share table being less than 1%, that's an outstanding number. There's 98,000 schools and only less than 1% of them are doing share tables. Right. That, I think there's like, a I lot of fear around food safety concerns and liability more than anything. So like you said, people need to be educated about that in a lot of situations you'll be held harmless when your intentions were clearly positive you have to check right. and see what your legal department says but i, mean, I, don't... I guess you can't yeah i just i don't think you can look at that in isolation to say so if if we if we firmly believe we're damaging the environment there's a liability in that right right no one's going to get charged for it right we when we look at anything in any one instance like oh wait i could take this food and somebody could get sick well Somebody, some kid could get sick in your school already, but you still feed them every day, right? True. And so I think sometimes we kind of get in this little isolation. I'm going to do this one little thing because I could get sued over it, right? Maybe you could get sued over getting somebody sick anyway. So it's like, but what's the consequence of not doing it? Right. What's the consequence of, of, of school systems across the country with 56 million kids? What kind of impact does that really cause on our environment? What kind of impact does it cost on our school budgets? How much does that increase our property taxes if we're wasting the food? If we're already, as taxpayers, if we're already going to pay for the food to be purchased, might as well get it to the next place that somebody can eat it. Right. You know, 
it, that seems like a wise use of my taxpayer dollar, right? So I think if people just kind of rethink this problem and think about the contributions that schools are making on a daily basis to our landfills, hmm. you, you, yeah. and it, it'll, cost some money. it'll cost some money up front. It always does. It costs us money up front to do this, several hundred thousand dollars to get this thing started, right? But think about the kind of benefit you could get if, it's, if, if, if it becomes as, as accepted as the food bank model. You could really have tangible benefit. And I do, I actually do think it's something, maybe it's not going to travel to our most smallest rural towns in the country, but I think South Bend is not a very large, South Bend, Elkhart, Mishawaka is not a huge area. I think it could travel to quite a few places in our country. That, I mean, that's an, that's an amazing vision. It's certainly needed. And the time that I've spent volunteering in food banks, I worry about people who already have health problems who Mm -hmm. are supposed to be on a certain type of diet and there is just nothing at the food bank that really is advisable for them to eat but your option is be sick a little maybe now and live another day or just get completely malnourished because you don't have any other options but like you said the school systems are mandated to have foods that meet a certain standard of health. So it's just, it's such a shame to be throwing that away when it is so needed. You know, as well too, heart disease is the number one killer in the U S right. Right. And, and when we start with uh, products that are canned in box, right. We, we start with a ton of sodium. And so, yeah, it's great. We get, we can feed a lot of people with the, uh, food that excess food that from our grocery stores that are canned in box, and and it's inexpensive, right? To do that to warehouse a lot of canned in box items, right? It's probably cost effective to do that in the short term, but what I wonder is what's the long term impact? If you take you take that senior that's worked their entire life, right? I, I think there's a little bit of misconception that 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 the people that are receiving uh, the benefits from you know a, a food bank or from us is that they, you know, maybe they haven't worked or they're taking advantage of the system. I don't think that's the case in most cases at all, right? We have retired citizens that have worked their entire life with the idea that Social Security and Medicare would be enough for them to live on. But that, that's not true. And we can argue why or what the motivation is. It doesn't really matter. The reality is too many of our retired citizens are going, do I buy prescriptions or do I buy food today? And it's, that's, that's a pretty bad place that we're in. And then, and then when they do get food, you know, half the people or half the people that go to a food pantry on a regular basis are retired citizens and they're putting in and most of their diet is stuff packed with sodium. And if you have heart issues, yeah, man, it's, it's, it might be really inexpensive. And the other thing is just the transportation. So what, what I think we kind of lucked into is that, we get the food closer to the person that needs it. And in almost every poverty situation, logistics is huge right. for the person stuck in it. So that retired shut-in, it's hard to get out. It's hard to make it to the food bank. And then if you do, you know, it's all canned box items. And you have to actually prepare it. And as you get older, it's a little harder. You're, you know I mean? You don't have as much energy. So for us to have something that's convenient, microwavable, way less sodium, right? A meal. I think one of our patrons called it real food. 
And that real food comment is something I, I was like, what do they mean by real food? And they looked at me and said, that doesn't come from a can or a box. And I was like, I never, I never tied the two together, but it's like the long-term issue, the long-term cost of giving that older person that much sodium in their diet may cost us way more in the long term than it did to give them something inexpensive up front. That really makes a lot of sense that we have to look at this issue and probably we should be looking at all issues in a more holistic way and not just mm-hmm. focusing on, oh, I'm saving time and effort and money here, but what is it really going to cost us? And it isn't always uh, something you can assign cash value to, but just how valuable are the lives of these people in your community and how valuable is like human happiness and contentment? Like you can't really put a price on that. And can we sacrifice that? Is that something we want to do as a society? Cause these are our most vulnerable community members. What does it say about you? If you let people who need you the most just kind of flounder. So, well, and if they're, if they're relying on it, right. And if they've got hunger issues and you're relying on food and, and and you get in the cycle of I've got to go to the pantry more often because I'm worried about my prescription costs. I'm worried about the cost of going to a hospital if I have to get admitted and all those things, right? That worry creates more issues, more illnesses, right? More fear. And, and that brings all kinds of anxiety and problems and health conditions. And so it's like this like really bad circle you start spiraling down. And when you see people in it, it's it's almost devastating. I mean, the, the big revelation for me is like, I've seen this firsthand and, and I focused on an issue and, and it may surprise a lot of people by what we're doing. I'm actually a very conservative Republican, right? And, but I care about these things. And I think we let our politics and our, our whatever issues may be, if we're championing this or that, we let all that stuff get in the way. And and it doesn't really matter if I'm a conservative Republican and you're a little Democrat. We still have the same goal that we don't want these people to go hungry and we don't want the food to get wasted. And we we might argue about the degree in which it hurts the environment, but I think we all kind of agree that it hurts the environment. So, like, if we could put that stuff aside and just focus on the real issues, I think we could get somewhere with this, this whole thing. So that's what we hope. Um, we've been a little bit, we try to be very apolitical in what we're doing. We've had both sides of the aisle in because it, we just believe it's something we all can support if we can educate ourselves and get around this perception and it's somehow that much more risky than maybe what the food bank's doing or any other restaurant that would serve us food because I don't think it's inherently that much more risky. Okay. This, I'm getting so much good information out of this because I also assumed that it might be more risky but when Mm -hmm. you explain it it's not that serious like you said we handle food every day we know what the regs are every school has a serve safe certified person there we know how to cool things so it's much less scary when you explain it i guess it's all a matter of perception and i appreciate that you brought in the politics a little because you're right this can easily be a bipartisan issue and a mm-hmm. lot of people do assume that it's um, people who aren't contributing that tend to need help but it could easily be anyone and of friend of ours in another district who's also she's a director and sometimes we go to the capitol to advocate for our kids just different uh, school nutrition related things we're concerned about usually all just 
typical stuff you see in the news that sometimes doesn't seem bipartisan, but she always makes the point that no kids have jobs. So like literally every child is financially unstable because they're beholden Mm -hmm. to adults to take care of them. And it isn't, it doesn't make sense not to create a safety net for these children when we will later all be dependent upon them. Obviously, we want them to do well because their successes are success as a nation. And it's a lot of hardworking, working class people who cannot feed their children all the time. And yep. just because you need help, that doesn't mean you did something wrong or that you're not you know, doing what you're supposed to do as a hardworking American. And we want to remove that stigma because in some areas where we've had more success with like backpack programs, people are ashamed to admit that they need anything. And some kids Mm -hmm. would rather not eat at all than admit that they're food insecure. So really the stigma has to go. Yeah. And it's amazing. And I agree that that's the case. Like, but like with, I can tell you with, with the two pilots that we have now, they're both 90 plus percent free and reduced launch. Mm-hmm. Um, like three, three really great moments of this whole thing. Friday, being able to be there when the kids actually came in, picked up the, the backpacks and you see their face, right? They're excited. They're excited to have food, right? Um, when they announced at Elkhart Community Schools uh, to the cafeteria workers that they were going to do the program, they all applauded, right? Wow. And and then the Monday after the first weekend, um, when they saw the kids' face after having been able to eat something over the weekend, and we put eight males in the backpack, assuming there's probably somebody else at home struggling with food. It might even be the parent. Um, and so we try to pad a little bit heavy on the food just so if they have to share it. Um, but to to actually see the faces of the kids for even if it is that maybe the parents aren't the most responsible people, right? Right. Still shouldn't fall to the kids, right? right? I mean, I just don't know how you can't get behind um, helping kids, even if they happen to have irresponsible parents. Right. Um, that's, That's beyond my ability to control. But man, if I could do something to help that child eat at Madison where we're, Steve McKenna, where we're feeding 100 kids, Seven, they have 700 kids, almost all of them on free reduced lunch. Um, the pride issue is not an issue. <laughs> they need the food. The, right. the food is a powerful motivator, actually. They were running a snack program at the school, and they, when they first started doing um, the snack program, they would put stars on the locker so the volunteers that came in and put the food in the locker would know which locker to put it in. Once the kids started figuring that out, they started stealing the stars. Oh, wow. Because the need was so great. And so um, the pride issue in the older community is a huge deal. But in a school where there's a ton of poverty, the the need for food becomes a powerful motivator. What we kind of hope in this pilot is that they, that, that we see better grades. Um, We hand out the food on Friday and, and they have to bring the backpack on Monday and we did that because Friday and Monday tend to be the days with the highest absenteeism. And they're really the only way out of poverty, at least in my opinion, is through education, right? Oh, I think and that's so definitely true. The kid has to be there. So we're trying to motivate the kid to be there because he's going to get the food on Friday. And even get the parents to have the kid there, right? Because he's going to get the food on Friday. And in order to get the next Friday, he has to bring the backpack on Monday. 
Um, it's been a little hard to enforce and we got to get better at it, but it, we're really kind of wanting to look back organically at the data and say, Hey, did we see a 10% increase in, in attendance or 15? Um, and then how well did they do? You know, we have the, the teachers, um, do surveys. Are you eating the food? Um, how well is that child behaving after getting the food? Right. And so what we're hoping is to document, at least on the surface level, that this program had a positive influence on a child's ability to learn. Because if we can do that, that will help other programs get started. Absolutely. Well, I look forward to seeing that data published. Thank you so much for taking out the time to speak with me. I think this is going to be incredibly helpful for other people to hear. So if people want to connect with your organization more, where do we find you online? Yeah, so it's www.cultivateculinary.com. Like us on Facebook because we tend to share things like information on Facebook that that people that might be interested in starting a program that will share tidbits, a lot of tidbits about what we're doing. And so you can organically gather that information, but we are purposely putting together a package over the next four or five months to say somehow we think this can help you get started. Here's maybe um, some steps in which to do that. And we'd probably be willing to have people come up and if they want to take a tour, because we just did that. Um, But we have to kind of measure with that with our own time constraints. So, um, and so if somebody wanted to do that, we'll probably do that, but they can email us. That's the best thing to do. It's info at cultivateculinary.com because then we'll put you in our database. And as we purposely release information, you'll be included in that release. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thanks again for coming on. This is so good. Um, Yeah, just God bless you and keep doing what you're doing. I hope more of us follow in y'all's footsteps. So Jim gave us a lot to think about. I hope after hearing how involved it can be that you're not discouraged, but encouraged to reach out to your state agency, your health department, to local stakeholders to see how your district or how you personally can be part of the child hunger solution. I'm so glad you joined us for another episode of School Nutrition Dietitian. Remember, we all grow by sharing. The only fee for this show is that you share it with others when you hear something useful. Hopefully, that will be every episode. Also, be sure to rate and review the show on iTunes. That really helps us out with visibility. School Nutrition Dietitian, here on a mission to show you fruits and vegetables can be super delicious. Eating healthy keeps you healthy on the inside. Keep your stomach satisfied and keep a clear mind. Now you're ready for your academics. Focus, time to handle business. Breakfast, you don't want to miss it. Help your body to replenish. Clean food, clear mind. That is the vision. Tune in to the School Nutrition Dietitian. Tissue. Whoop.